You are listening to the Just Powers podcast, a series devoted to supporting and disseminating the work of researchers, activists, artists, and theorists that provide conceptual tools for imagining feminist and decolonial energy transition for more livable futures for all. The Just Powers podcast is made possible by support from Future Energy Systems, Canada First Research Excellence Fund, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Cool Institute of Advanced Study, Campus Saint-Jean, and the University of Alberta. Today's recording features excerpts from the book Petrocultures, Oil, Politics, Culture, a collection of essays edited by Sheena Wilson, Adam Carlson, and Imre Zeman. Petrocultures provides much-needed research that addresses head-on the conceptual, philosophical, and theoretical challenges that emerge from a sustained examination of the social and cultural significance of energy in various forms, oil being only the most prevalent form at present. The book is available from McGill-Queens University Press and is also available from Amazon. Sheena Wilson is Associate Professor at the University of Alberta, co-founder and co-director of the International Petrocultures Research Group, and principal investigator on Just Powers, an interdisciplinary research project that seeks to mobilize feminist and decolonial politics in the interest of economically, socially, politically, and technologically just futures. Sheena's research interests involve an interdisciplinary and intersectional approach to studying how the extractivist worldview that has contributed to climate change through the exploitation of land and resources likewise allows for the exploitation of gendered, classed, and racialized bodies and the erasure of knowledge held by those bodies. Given that mobilizing against climate change can be overwhelming, she argues for a focus on power shift, literally in terms of energy transition and figuratively in terms of social justice, as a means to anchor feminist and decolonial political movements striving for climate justice. Adam Carlson is a PhD candidate and Isaac Walton Killam Memorial Scholar in English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta. His doctoral research focuses on the cultural politics of energy in Quebec and Alberta. He is a member of the Petrocultures Research Group and After Oil. He is associate editor for Reviews in Cultural Theory, and his work has appeared in the journal Mediations. Imra Zeman is University Research Chair and Professor of Communication Arts at the University of Waterloo. As CRC, Zeman aims to examine the continuing impact of globalization on culture and to produce new theories to account for changes in how we experience and theorize culture. As a professor and scholar, Zeman conducts research on and teaches in the areas of energy humanities, environmental studies, critical and cultural theory, social and political philosophy, and Canadian studies. Zeman is also co-director of Petrocultures, a research cluster at the University of Alberta whose aim is to support, produce, and distribute research related to the socio-cultural aspects of oil and energy in Canada and the world today. Introduction On Petrocultures, or Why We Need to Understand Oil to Understand Everything Else. By Sheena Wilson, Imra Zeman, and Adam Carlson. Oil transformed everyday life in the 20th century. In the 21st century, we are finally beginning to realize the degree to which oil has made us moderns, who and what we are shaping our existence close at hand while narrating us into networks of power and commerce far, far away. At the heart of this newfound awareness of oil's importance to our sensibilities and social expectations, our belief, for example, that sociality is of necessity narrated by perpetual growth, ceaseless mobility, and the expanded personal capacities and possibilities associated with the past century's new flood of energy into our lives, is our recognition that over the course of our current century, we will need to extract ourselves from our dependence on oil and make the transition to new energy sources and new ways of living. 
In June 2015, the G7 nations pronounced that the era of fossil fuels would end by 2100. With this declaration and many more ambitious ones like it, we have embarked upon a social transformation without historical precedent, especially given the scope. For example, the Earth's population may reach 9.6 billion people by mid-century. And its scale, affecting the infrastructure of the entire planet involved. Oil transformed life over the century in which we came to depend on it. The looming threat of its absence from our lives means that it will transform us again from people who are at home and comfortable in the petrocultures we have devised for ourselves to people who will have to shape ourselves to fit contexts and landscapes we can barely imagine, even if we need to do so, and quickly. To help begin this work of energy transition and transformation, researchers in the arts, humanities, and social sciences have turned their critical attention toward oil and energy as never before. What distinguishes the scholarly discussions that make up the emerging field of the energy humanities, to which the essays in this collection are a contribution, is that they position oil and energy as the fulcrum around which many of today's most pressing social, economic, and political issues must be analyzed and understood. The energy transition that will need to take place over the 21st century is certainly filled with all manner of technological and political challenges. However, the most significant challenges involved in moving away from fossil fuels to new forms of energy are less matters of technology or public policy than they are social and cultural problems. At issue is not only the kinds of energy we use and depend on, that is, whether we should replace fossil fuels with solar or wind power, but also the purposes to which we put energy, the why and how of energy. These purposes are varied and extensive and are folded into every aspect of our lives, linking our deepest hopes and desires to the spaces of energy extraction and to the measure of watts used per person per year. Energy transition will therefore involve not only a change in the kinds of energy we use, but also a transition in the values and practices that have been shaped around our use of the vast amounts of energy provided by fossil fuels. The lack to date of critical intellectual resources by which we might make possible the social transition needed to support and enable energy transition is one of the reasons why ever-increasing public knowledge about global warming has resulted in relatively minimal action to address it. The challenges we face are significant. As Vaclav Smeal points out, quote, lessons of the past energy transitions may not be particularly useful for appraising and handicapping the coming energy transition because it will be exceedingly difficult to restructure the modern high-energy industrial and post-industrial civilization on the basis of non-fossil, that is overwhelmingly renewable, fuels and flows, end quote. The essays collected in Petrocultures provide a map of the social and political challenges of the energy transition we now face, laying bare the complex and contradictory ways oil has shaped our social imaginaries and offering a multifaceted analysis of the claims and assumptions that shape and guide how we think and talk about fossil fuels. Energy has played an essential role in shaping modern social and cultural life. As many social and cultural critics are now becoming aware, quote, the story of human development has been the story of the increased use of energy. Indeed, we can even think of human history as falling into epochs marked by the human ability to exploit various sources of energy, end quote. The modern discovery of oil in 1859 in Titusville, Pennsylvania, played a crucial role in enabling the monumental growth of human populations and of the technological innovation that we now associate with the development of modernity. 
The 16-fold increase in economic output over the course of the 20th century required a 17-fold increase in energy consumption. Similar increases in water use, sulfur dioxide emissions, world population levels, and, of course, carbon dioxide emissions are directly related to the expanded economic capacities enabled by fossil fuels. While it would be reductive to see in the expanded use of energy an explanation for every aspect of modernity, it is equally problematic not to include energy in our narratives of historical change and development, including social and cultural shifts and transitions. Despite evidence of the importance of energy to the shape of our lives, and of the specific importance of fossil fuels, which have fueled not just automobiles and the culture of mass individual mobility, but also a consumer era shaped around polymers and plastics, as Kirsty Robertson, Amanda Butskas, and Janine McLeod point out in their contributions to this volume, we moderns have been almost willfully blind to its impact on us. Figuring energy in relation to historical developments opens up new insights into the forces of power and politics that have shaped modernity and demands that we critically explore the surprising limits of aesthetics and representation in relation to energy, an issue addressed in almost every essay of this book. The 20th century was transformed by oil. Why, then, has it taken until the 21st century for us to begin to grapple with the cultural and social consequences of this transformation and with the substance that made it happen? The importance of fossil fuels in defining modernity has stood in inverse relationship to their presence in our cultural and social imaginaries, a fact that comes as a surprise to almost everyone who engages in critical explorations of energy today. In order to understand how fossil fuels have managed to be hidden in plain sight, an obviously important resource, but one whose importance has not been determinately and precisely figured in culture, a great deal of work on petrocultures has examined the relationship between fossil fuels and literary representation. An early work in the energy humanities is Amitav Ghosh's essay, Petrofiction. Ghosh poses a simple question. Given the geopolitics of the 20th century, which has been shaped to an inordinate degree around struggles over oil and gas, why have fossil fuels been thematized in so few of the fictions of the petrohegemon of the century, the United States? This absence of energy from much of 20th century narrative has prompted critics to re-examine literary history, not only to hunt for those few examples of oil fiction that do exist, but also to interrogate the broader relationship between energy, representation, and culture. Glenn Wilmot's and Joshua Schuster's explorations of oil in American and modernist literature offer new perspectives on these literary fields. Given the absence of oil from our narratives, these authors also raise questions about the politics of literary representation and our capacity to fully name the forms and forces of modern culture and experience. Similar investigations into the significance of fossil fuel representation have been undertaken in relation to the visual arts, film, and photography. The absence noted by Gauche of fossil fuels in 20th century literature, and even earlier by Bertolt Brecht, who noted that, quote, petroleum resists the five-act form, end quote, extends to these other areas of culture as well, and the growing critical interest in naming and explaining this absence is reflected in the number of pieces in this volume that situate themselves at the conjunction of energy, aesthetics, and representation. Georgiana Benita and Amanda Butskas offer analysis of the aesthetics of petrocultures, probing the way that oil culture shapes and conditions vision. 
one example of the complex manner in which oil shapes visuality, and how in turn modern visuality has been shaped to make it difficult to see oil, is offered in Michael Maloof's investigation of the way our deadened relationship to the social consequences of energy is naturalized in popular children's films. The resources invisibility reaffirmed even in those films that thematize the need for us to transition to new forms of energy. The possibility of a critical petroaesthetic and the challenges of making visible this socially invisible substance is further explored in Clint Burnham's analysis of Edward Bertinsky's widely known photo narrative, Oil. This volume is additionally distinguished by the contributions of Brenda Longfellow, Alison Rowe, and Gio Takash, artists who recognize the challenges that oil has posed to representation and who work to develop a critico-aesthetic vocabulary so that we might all the more forcefully make oil a part of representation a crucial step in figuring the true cultural, social, and political significance of energy. Critical engagement with the history and politics of oil is also integral to a fuller understanding of the petrocultures we inhabit, that energy, and fossil fuels in particular, shaped and defined 20th century politics is undeniable. The geopolitics of the modern era, everything from colonial expansion, which was underwritten by the energy from coal in the UK, to the ongoing misadventures of the West in the Middle East, to the just-in-time production and container shipping networks of globalization, is tied to availability of and access to fossil fuels. But the impact of fossil fuels on politics goes deeper than this, extending to the very core of our political experience and shaping even our political philosophy, whether we have realized it or not. Quote, the mansion of modern freedoms stands on an ever-expanding base of fossil fuel use. Most of our freedoms are energy-intensive, end quote, writes Deepesh Chakrabarti. The verities and pieties of liberal political philosophy were imagined against the backdrop of a world with ever-expanding energy resources. In a world in which energy will no longer be so abundant, we now have to revisit and reimagine our energy-intensive freedoms. In Carbon Democracy, Timothy Mitchell argues that carbon-based energy, first coal and then oil, has played an important role in shaping our contemporary conceptions of democracy, something that the West insistently deploys as a rhetorical strategy in justifying expansion projects into oil-rich nations in the Middle East. We bring democracy as we extract oil, goes the narrative. Mitchell's research shows the formative role of energy in the political project of democracy and, by extension, the constitution of the modern nation-state and the neoliberal state of the 21st century. Many of the contributions to this volume highlight the political significance of energy resources. They do so not by noting the undeniable geopolitical importance of energy, but by alerting us to the deeper political operations of oil and energy. If oil has been hidden in plain sight in cultural representations, this is equally true of its social and political presence. Pipelines serve as an important material function in getting energy from extraction sites in the hinterland to the postmodern spaces in which oil and gas are consumed. As Graham MacDonald and Darren Barney explain, pipelines also play an important role in making oil invisible, naturalizing its presence in our lives and hiding the environmental impacts of extraction far from the eyes of concerned publics. Barney's essay treats pipelines as an important media form that has played, and continues to play, a key role in the constitution of the Canadian nation-state. As Sryan Mukherjee shows in his contribution, the redefinition of Canadian nationalism in relation to the country's status as a petrostate, especially during the decade-long reign of Prime Minister Stephen Harper, 
has had implications for the country's narrative of multiculturalism and its relations with First Nations communities. These subtle re-narrations and reimaginings of politics as a result of energy have taken place in other oil-producing nations as well, as David McDermott Hughes shows in his investigations of quote-unquote petropastoralism in Trinidad. Hughes offers an account of the political processes by which broad local support for petro projects is secured, even given the community worries about the environmental implications of living near extraction sites. Michael Trussello argues that we need to see nation-states as complex petro-modern assemblages whose action and activities include byproducts, like the poisons in water systems mapped in Janine McLeod's essay, that will outlive contemporary political arrangements by hundreds of years. These essays point to the political contexts and circumstances produced by oil and fossil fuels and the range of new political questions that arise from a critical focus on energy. Just as politics has been shaped by and in reaction to oil, so too have many of our important concepts and theories. Once again, as with the link between politics and energy, the shaping influence of fossil fuels on philosophy and critical theory has had an impact on how we view the present and our collective ability to respond to the problems and provocations of a fossil fuel society. Andrew Pendakis explores oil as the hidden reel of metaphysics and matter of the modern era, the er commodity that constitutes a key component of ontological essence and which is also a prime source of value. Tim Capozzi argues that oil necessitates new forms and modes of historiography in order to capture the substance's power and impact, especially if we are to ever organize ourselves in relation to energy alternatives. Randy Schroeder's engagement with Alan Stokel's Bataille's Peak, one of the only extended encounters between philosophy and oil, is intended to unsettle the assumptions informing the concept of quote-unquote sustainability, arguing that the rational, instrumental philosophy that shapes sustainability is the self-same one that produced our environmental and energy crisis. In his contribution, Mark Simpson critiques the ideology of lubricity, the contemporary fantasy world we inhabit, one of smooth flows of people, resources, and capital that demands intensified use of petrocarbons to keep everything moving. These essays track dangerous logics and concepts, ideas that are threatening either because of their hitherto unexplained link to fossil fuel energy or because they impede our capacity to fully address environmental problems. The logics that shape our present have been passed down to us, some dating back millennia and grounded in religions and cultural beliefs about what it means to be human and to live in society, others a product of Western Enlightenment modes of relating to the world of Keynesian models of growth and progress, Cartesian dualism resulting in racial and gender subjugation, the ideologies governing conquest and colonialism that now undergird the nation-state system and global business alliances alike. Now, suddenly, within a generation or two, we need to confront from within our current conundrum and without the luxury of objectivity or distance, how to reinvent and reimagine our lives and the concepts and philosophies that have long shaped them. Oil has transformed life, and in a deeper and more profound way than one might first imagine. The contributions to petrocultures highlight this in multiple ways, drawing attention to energy's shaping influence, at once cultural, social, and political. We recognize that it can seem like an overstatement to claim that energy and fossil fuels in particular have had such a determinate historical influence, especially given energy's long absence from critical consideration. 
The question might be posed, if energy was so important, why hadn't we noticed it before now? And yet its importance to shaping our lives is significant, reaching across the register of our experiences and moving from the concrete and material to the abstract and immaterial. To take just one example, to be modern is to be mobile as never before. At the heart of this mobility is the culture of the automobile. In the West, the automobile has been imbricated as a normal and necessary tool for personal independence and the successful management of a nuclear family, which in and of itself is intrinsic to neoliberal constructions of personal success. The promotion of the nuclear family as the accepted social norm has had significant ramifications for women and men who must independently reproduce in each household tasks that, had they been socioculturally constructed otherwise, could have easily been industrialized, thereby relieving many women and families of a significant amount of domestic labor. The housing needs of the nuclear family home have shaped the design of urban and suburban living in petrocultures. Just as the number of consumer goods and services necessary to run a single residence has created a large capitalist marketplace. These socially constructed relationships to consumer products, whether it is the automobile or even women's fashion and cosmetic products, including silicone breast implants, have been naturalized to such a degree that they are being upheld in 21st century advertising campaigns as symbols of Western women's equality and freedom. By proxy, non-Western women's inability to access these products is upheld as evidence of women's oppression. Advertising images as well as cinematic and cultural narratives represent the largely uncritical sociocultural acceptance of the automobile as a symbol of our own individual freedoms. These ideals of liberty or emancipation have been constructed very differently according to one's subject position relative to cis-heteropatriarchal normativity. Ultimately, however, mobility is part of the construction of a petro-capitalist economy in which the car and the petroleum-powered machines and petroleum-driven consumer products become inextricable from the modern imaginary. As Andrew S. Gross argues, quote, the most common trope of driving, the freedom of the road, end quote, popularized in the early 20th century is linked to market strategies that were targeting women as consumers. In fact, he argues, quote, the woman driver quickly became the central figure of consumerism. Gender, in fact, turns out to be an important strategy for mediating some of the conflicts and anxieties attending the transition to a consumer-oriented economy, end quote. Within this system, women become both consumers of automobile culture as well as commodities within the same circular network. As Cecily Devereaux discusses in her chapter, women and cars in many instances are made synonymous with one another the automobile being perceived as an object of desire and either equated to or accessorized by a woman, both objectified and both fetishized. Our relations and our gendered relationships to commodities and the identity tropes they embody have been figured as the natural outcome of oil and progress when, in fact, they form a complex series of sociocultural entanglements in the West over the last two centuries, culminating in neoliberal politics and economics. Freedom, identity, success. Our deepest ideals and most prominent social fantasies are mediated and enabled by energies of fossil fuels. Capitalist imperatives ensure that we measure what we value. Therefore, transformation will require a radical shift in worldview and how we attribute meaning. Oil prices are indexed daily. That which does not fit neatly into such indexes is rendered valueless as an externality or even casualty to this structural violence, things like glaciers, clean water, clean air, environmental rights, indigenous rights, indigenous peoples, the missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada. In her work, 
Audra Simpson makes a strong critique of the genocidal project of extractivism, whereby the handmaidens of white supremacist cis-heteropatriarchal petrocapitalism deploy specific logics in the name of nation-building and economic growth that require the eradication of certain bodies, in particular those of indigenous women, the original owners of the oil and resource-rich lands now occupied by settler Canadians. The colonial project of the nation relies on the pillage of natural resources and the construction of race, class, and gender, which reify some people as resources to be exploited, resulting in sociocultural paradigms where some lives matter more than others. However, for extraction to carry on, this reality must be denied, as former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and the Conservative Party of Canada did for a decade up until 2015, in order to push through environmentally damaging industrial projects and legislation. As the field of energy humanities develops, it will need to pay greater attention to the uneven impacts of fossil fuels on human communities. Our oil-fueled neoliberal economies and the vicious, voracious practices of globalization have created conditions of increasing disparity between rich and poor and have feminized, wifeized, in other words, rendered precarious, whole new strata of the global population over the last century. Such reorganizations have increased the wealth of a few elites built on a foundation of short-term, part-time contracts with masses of overworked debtors. All of this has been accomplished as markets drive personal aspirations toward increasing consumption on the one hand, while reducing wages and salaries, proclaiming we must all do more with less in the workplace and public spheres on the other hand. We must work harder and expect less in return, in terms of social security and social services. The commons and the common good constantly being eroded. This reality has reproduced itself time and again the planet over extractivist, capitalist production has resulted in what is now being referred to as the Anthropocene, human-induced climate change, on such a scale and to such a degree that it can now be mapped within geological time. Of course, this geological term redistributes responsibility for the negative impacts on our planetary ecosystem to all humans, when these outcomes have largely been caused by populations in the global West and by those with the greatest access to power both fossil fuels and capital, within those zones. To successfully undertake an energy transition in this century, it is essential to unravel these logics and our attachments to them in order to better understand the material and immaterial infrastructures and superstructures that shape our daily lived realities and govern our choices and mobilities within existing social, economic, and political networks. This book is an attempt to name and explain some of the key aspects of this monumental challenge, an early step in a still-unfolding cultural, social, and political project. This collection is composed of 21 chapters that touch on oil issues in almost every corner of the globe, from the Arctic to Scotland to Saudi Arabia, from Alberta's oil sands and Ontario's manufacturing regions to the Gulf of Mexico, from Iraq and Kuwait to China and India, and from Nigeria to Trinidad and Tobago. The authors analyze a range of social and political discourses, sometimes regional, sometimes national, and at other times planetary, that, when taken together, illustrate the ways that oil has been valorized and has thus transformed life as we know it. Many of the contributors specifically address oil as it is represented in cultural productions, including the visual arts, popular culture, corporate advertising, and national branding campaigns. For example, in the photography and filmmaking of Edward Bertinsky, Jennifer Bachewall, Peter Mettler, Emmett Gowan, Ursula Beeman, Alan Sekula, Ernst Logar, Matt Coolidge, and George Asodi. 
in the visual and installation art of Portia Munson, Song Dong, Melanie Smith, and Che Jonghua, in modernist poetry, pulp fiction, and the literature and criticism of Upton Sinclair, Stephen King, and Amitav Ghosh, in the lyrics of such songs as Baby Got Back and Mustang Sally, and in the films watched by a generation of children who've grown up seeing oil culture animated by Pixar. The chapters have been organized into six sections, grouped in ways that, when read one against another, provide added layers of nuance and meaning that help to outline what it means to live in a 21st century petroculture and what it might mean to extract ourselves from our petro-driven realities. Energy humanities scholars are interdisciplinary and come to issues around oil and energy drawing on a range of analytic traditions. The styles of some contributors reflect their backgrounds in social and political thought and cultural studies, while others draw on practices more typical of literary analysis and close reading. Still others, such as Gio Takash and Alison Rowe, represent creative research interventions that mobilize visual and textual imaginaries of the past and present to render visible specific networks and the web of planetary oil relations. The multidisciplinarity of this collection and the interdisciplinary work of the individual chapters is representative of ongoing work in the energy humanities, a field in which scholars are collectively tackling new and arising environmental and social challenges. The essays collected here were presented at the first Petrocultures Conference, held at Campus Saint-Jean of the University of Alberta in September of 2012. As academics working in literary and cultural studies in Alberta and living in Edmonton, the largest city located closest to the Alberta oil sands, we could not avoid studying the impact and effects of fossil fuels on the space and place in which we live. Since the turn of the century, when extraction activity in northern Alberta ramped up significantly, the oil sands have become one of the world's most important sites of struggle over our energy and environmental futures. This especially dirty source of energy with an extremely low energy return on energy investment, an EROEI of about 3.0, has become for many an index of everything that is wrong with the way in which we use energy today. The oil sands have become increasingly visible in recent years due to the struggle over the Keystone XL pipeline, which was supposed to transport oil from Alberta across the Canada-US border to refinery and storage facilities in Oklahoma and the other major pipelines proposed to take oil from the oil sands to Canada's east and west coasts. When Imre Zeman and I, Sheena Wilson, began the Petrocultures Research Group at the University of Alberta in 2010, we were surprised by the gaps we found in the critical literature on fossil fuels in general, and on the oil sands in particular. While there were existing activist and environmental texts advocating for renewable and sustainable energy, and historical studies of oil and energy systems, notably the groundbreaking work of David Nye, Investigations of the social imaginaries brought into being by the energies of fossil fuels, which is what we termed petrocultures, were in short supply. It was in an effort to canvas the existing state of research into petrocultures that we staged the 2012 conference, which was originally planned to take place over one and a half days. The response to our call for papers came as a pleasant shock and surprise. We received so many proposals and so many superb ones that the inaugural conference became a six-day event, a Petrocultures art show at Gallery at 501 in Sherwood Park, Alberta, four days of sharing papers in Edmonton, and a two-day trip to the home of the oil sands in the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo, with one day in the town of Fort McMurray, Alberta, and a day spent with community members, leaders, and elders in the Métis and First Nations community of Fort Mackay. A second Petrocultures conference held in 2014 at McGill University in Montreal confirmed this initial flurry of interest. 
Researchers from around the world are posing the questions and seeking the answers to the ways in which oil and energy have shaped our forms of being, belonging, and behaving. The third Petrocultures Conference held in 2016 at Memorial University in St. John's has established this biennial conference as a major event, gathering scholars from around the world and across the disciplines who are investigating the social, cultural, and political implications of energy practices and systems. As the field of energy humanities develops, expanding to cover more and more territory, geographically, conceptually, and historically, it has become possible to identify areas of petroculture that require more critical exploration than they have received thus far. In 2015, in conjunction with colleagues at the University of Alberta, the Emily Carr University of Art and Design, and the University of Manitoba, we co-authored a report that was intended to gather knowledge about research on Indigenous communities and energy, and research creation projects on fossil fuel cultures and environmental change. The collection of essays that we have brought together here deals with a wide range of issues and topics related to the significance of energy for contemporary society. As we are still near the beginning of our collective exploration of energy humanities, it is necessary to continue to expand the scope of investigation. We expect that this book, Petrocultures, will set the stage for deeper, more extensive, and more expansive analysis of energy and power, with specific attention to the sites and spaces in which energy intersects with class, gender, and race, particularly in relationship to treaty rights and traditional Aboriginal energy use practices, given the central role of Indigenous communities not only in providing insights into other modes of engaging with the environment, but also in approving or resisting extraction projects. As criticisms of carbon and energy-intensive projects become increasingly common, we need more than ever a critical project adequate to energy's pervasiveness across contemporary experience. As scientists and publics mobilize knowledge into new calls for moratoriums, debates about oil have stalled around the predictable opposition of environment versus economics, drill versus don't drill. We can neither give up oil all at once, nor can we continue to shape our societies around it. As is so often the case here too, each poll of the either-or discussion on fossil fuels constitutes a way of avoiding the real questions that need to be answered. The purpose of studying the petrocultures we inhabit is to uncover and elaborate the political potential and theoretical nuances crowded out in current forms of public discourse. This book provides much-needed research that addresses head-on the conceptual, philosophical, and theoretical challenges that emerge from a sustained examination of the social and cultural significance of energy in various forms, oil being only the most prevalent form at present. As an ongoing project, the study of petrocultures confronts critical issues around oil and energy, providing crucial insights into what it means to live at this historical moment and what we need to do to imagine and create new ways of being. Oil and its outcomes, speed, plastics, the luxuries of capitalism, to name a few, have lubricated our relationship to one another and the environment for the duration of the 20th century. As we struggle to transition to less carbon-intensive energies and lifestyles, this collection provides scholars and engaged publics with a more nuanced understanding of oil as an energy source and substance imbricated into every aspect of our daily lived realities. Oil transformed our lives in the 20th century. Might we transform our lives in the 21st century, reshaping our petroculture into societies whose energy use doesn't imperil the future and the environment we inhabit? Part 1. Rigs, Platforms, and Pipelines by Adam Carlson Infrastructures connect strange bedfellows. Take the U.S. military's Canal Project. In 1942, the perceived threat of Japanese invasion prompted the construction of the Alaska Highway. In order to provide fuel for this new military supply line, 
thousands of American troops and workers set up on Canadian soil in what has been called, quote, the greatest construction job since the Panama Canal, end quote. Canal involved construction of a string of 10 northern airfields, more than 3,000 kilometers of roads through the wilderness, 2,500 kilometers of pipelines, and a refinery, quote, scraped together from secondhand pieces collected from throughout North America, end quote. Completed in only 20 months, Canal was abandoned less than a year later. In 1947, the discovery of oil in Leduc, Alberta, convinced Texas-based oilmen that Canada's oil reserves were worthy of private investment, and later that year, the project's refinery plant in Whitehorse, Yukon, was sold and disassembled, and its 7,000 tons of pieces were hauled more than 2,000 kilometers to Edmonton to be met by the American capital and expertise that would develop Canada's oil industry. The history of Canal shows the complexity and scale of the assemblages of knowledge, multinational capital investment, and national-international security strategies embodied in modern oil infrastructure. Yet the public conversations by which we discuss and understand infrastructure consistently rely on the simplest notions of self-interest and appeal to the crudest nationalisms. Of course, massive infrastructural projects do build nations, but they do so in complicated and uneven ways, in effect structuring unevenness between nations. As fluid transnational capital fixes itself within borders, it mobilizes nationalism towards several ends. For instance, infrastructure projects are always justified through pseudo-protectionist discourses of energy security or job creation, discourses that are as mobile and liquid as oil in a pipeline. Days after Barack Obama announced the construction of TransCanada's Keystone XL pipeline was not in the U.S. national interest, TransCanada and the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers turned their efforts towards emphasizing the quote-unquote nation-building aspects of their Canadian pipeline projects. Canada is a petrostate, what Harold Innes called a staples economy. In this view, Canadian Confederation was quote, essentially dictated by the need to create a larger state to provide security for foreign capital to build first the canals and then the railways to facilitate the movement of staples, end quote. Today, the dramatic drop in oil prices has shown Canada to be in a classic case of what Innes called a staples trap, that vulnerability peculiar to an economy whose capital is rigidly fixed in relation to the liquid freedom enjoyed by metropolitan financial centers. Infrastructures also naturalize and reproduce unevennesses within nations. The discovery of oil and gas in Alaska and the Canadian North synthesized convergent aspects of the liberal nation-building project. Technology for extracting and transporting resources developed coextensively with those state technologies for administering the peoples of the North. Indeed, Canada's mid-century discourses of northern development and nation-building are intrinsic to the colonial and ongoing neo-colonial rationalization of the dispossession of indigenous lands and the assimilation of indigenous peoples into capitalist modernity. Finally, infrastructure mediates the intersection between the inter- and the intranational. Here, the nation as an internally dynamic economic unit made up of diverse financial, regional, and historical interests and experiences confronts its cultural reflection as an ideological unity, the quote-unquote nation, however imperfect or imaginary, to be built. Myths of national unity naturalize the material dependencies concretized in energy infrastructures. These dependencies are managed by affects that are themselves unevenly distributed, as we see in the complex example of path dependency, or 
the Grimway infrastructure threatens to extend the present's reliance on fossil fuels into the future. In a petro-state like Canada, path dependency is promoted as offering dependable revenue streams. In the U.S., the path dependencies developing out of exploiting the Marcellus Shale and Bakken Crude are marketed as energy independence. These subtle differences in self-delusion reflect the shifting perspectives through which struggles over resources take place across the world system. Each of the chapters in Part 1, Rigs, Platforms, and Pipelines, engages in an analysis of such resource struggles, making visible the relations of power and political contingencies held in place by the infrastructures of petroculture. The section opens with an essay by Brenda Longfellow about her cinematic trilogy on oil megaprojects. In Extreme Oil and the Perils of Cinematic Practice, she reflects on the challenges of creating art pieces capable of representing and engaging with the new and proliferating frontiers of extreme oil. Her first two films, Carpe Diem and Dead Ducks, use opera and animation to critique the development of the Alberta oil sands. Offshore, an interactive documentary inspired by the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, entices viewers to confront the dark world of offshore oil drilling as they explore a hastily abandoned oil rig. As players move deeper into offshore's multimedia structure, they try to piece together a narrative of what has gone wrong. Mapping the environmental and human scope of energy extraction, offshore resonates across multiple registers, exposing crony capitalism, corporate corruption, and government mismanagement, provoking existential unease in the face of enormous inhuman structures and alien frontiers, and framing the unimaginable ecological scale of current and future disasters. However, as Longfellow points out, quote, on some very deep and mythic level, unquote, Offshore's most profound message concerns, quote, the humiliation and materialization of our toxic dependency on oil, end quote. Using research creation as a means to reach broader audiences, all three of Longfellow's projects highlight the pervasive social character of oil, a substance that is simultaneously omnipresent and invisible. Interrogating the oil pipeline as both a visible metaphor and an invisible infrastructural element supporting contemporary petroculture, Graham MacDonald's Containing Oil, the Pipeline in Petroculture thinks through the key role that petrocultures and energy humanities research plays in addressing the crisis of oil in the context of environmental sustainability. Examining the aesthetics and politics of pipelines, MacDonald argues, quote, that comparing images of pipelines from core and periphery of the world petrosystem offers one means to consider how this invisibility is both culturally naturalized and internationally relative, structurally managed in the interests of an oil-reliant capitalism seeking to extend and perpetuate supply while downplaying the ongoing exploitative shame of extraction and land dispossession and the inevitable endpoints of burning, end quote. Drawing on visual representations of oil fields from Scotland to Canada and from the U.S. to Nigeria, MacDonald demonstrates how Quote, the debate over, quote-unquote, efficient and, quote-unquote, sustainable forms of energy is always fundamentally global, set within a predominant and world-systemic form of political economy and material infrastructure dependent on flowing petroleum, end quote. Darren Barney similarly troubles the ideological and technological infrastructures by which petroculture is naturalized. In who we are and what we do, Canada as a pipeline nation, 
Barney explores the politics of Canadian nationalism as expressed in both historical and ongoing debates about oil pipelines in Canada. Providing an overview of pipelines in Canada since 1853, he explores the current and projected economic benefits perpetuated by pro-pipeline commentators and investigates how these contestable quote-unquote facts link up with other discourses of national interest. Prominent politicians, including former federal cabinet minister and former Alberta premier, the late Jim Prentice, frequently describe pipelines as nation-building infrastructure, but they do so via a rhetoric of what's called technological nationalism, through which the imaginary community of the nation is divined in accordance with the uninterrupted flows of goods and capital. Quote, in this imaginary country, jobs spring from the ground in great numbers and seem to go on forever, and the public coffers are always full of revenues generated by taxes and resource royalties, end quote. Barney concludes that despite all the confident appeals to a unified nation, the fierce, ongoing, and increasingly regionalized debates over pipelines in Canada, quote, might actually reflect an uncertainty about who we are and what we do, about whether exploiting resources such as the oil sands for the profit of the few is what it means to be Canadian, end quote. This section closes with Michael Trisello's Can the Petro-Modern State Form Wither Away? The Implications of Hyperobjects for Anti-Statist Politics. Trisello draws on Timothy Morton's influential concept of hyperobjects to examine some of the material tendencies that have been generated by petromodernity. He does so in an effort to rebuke various political programs that consciously promote or uncritically imply a return to the mythical, normative, pre-oil world as the antidote to our petromodern maladies. Assemblages of agencies that are only discernible across planetary and epical registers. Hyperobjects include byproducts such as radioactive waste and global climate change that will outlive contemporary social arrangements by thousands or millions of years. These objects and the quote-unquote attenuated disasters they index are materially and historically inextricable from the modern infrastructural state form. Seeing states as petro-modern assemblages, Tresello reveals the scale of the challenge, not only for late capitalist liberal democracy, but also, and perhaps especially, for radical politics aimed at abolishing the state and averting mass extinction. As the study of petroculture consolidates and extends into a general disciplinary field connecting the humanities to energy studies, it has become clear that questions about what is being delivered in pipelines necessarily extend beyond the logistics of the physical substance to confront the unsustainable contradictions of oil and oil-based living in general. These chapters address what infrastructures produce when they work or fail, and what they achieve in terms of consolidating national identities and nation-building projects. But these papers also gesture well beyond nations to imagine what petrocultural ruins will leave those who survive the multiple catastrophes and species genocides of climate change to deal with in a post-oil future. Part 6. New Stories, New Knowledge, Research Creation Creative interventions into petrocultural production call into question how we have arrived at the current moment. In doing so, they open up conversations about where we go from here and how we might extricate ourselves from petroculture's dangerous complexities. This section consists of two creative pieces, a radio play and an account of an artist's residency that invite researchers to engage imaginatively with the social and political issues raised throughout this collection. Geo Takasha's 
Live from Alberta, Radio Petro presents A Scary Home Companion. Pastiches together the great minds of Harold Innes, Marshall McLuhan, Adam Smith, Henry Ford, Catherine the Great, Matsuo Basho, and Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, along with sundry others to debate the case of Alberta's oil sands. In this play, Takash combines scholarship with satire, making visible the cultural and historical materials undergirding the narratives that mediate relationships between people and resources, history and politics, regions and the world. Alison Rose, the Tar Sands Exploration Station, details how she spent three weeks on a self-directed artist's residency immersed in the spaces and communities of Fort McMurray, Alberta. Her time in northern Alberta produced a traveling multimedia exhibition, the Tar Sands Exploration Station, that entices visitors into a tactile, experiential engagement with the Oil Sands Industrial Project. Interactive elements of the installation are intended to inspire discussion and debate with the host artist and among visitors who meet on the site. The political project is to create dialogue about the ethical dilemmas associated with our current petroculture in general and the oil sands in particular. To reinvent our societies around new forms of energy and in newly defined relationships with the environment and one another will require rigorous interdisciplinary thinking mobilized by a diverse constituency of people with a range of worldviews, political commitments, scholarly and professional expertise, and lived experiences. It will also require engaging wider publics in environmental scholarship on a deeper and more visceral level through artistic forms, as Takash argues in his book, Scripting the Environment, Oil Democracy, and the Sands of Time and Space. Creative production and research creation projects like these and others build new knowledge around a range of 21st century questions that evade simplicity and do so in accessible ways that invite participation from students and citizens, community members, and even policymakers. What should our post-carbon futures look like? It is time to read and create new stories. The commitments to research creation started in this collection are also taken up in the Just Powers project, specifically in Speculative Energy Futures. For more information, see justpowers.ca. Today, your readers were Sheena Wilson and Adam Carlson. The Just Powers podcast was recorded at Campus Saint-Jean in Edmonton, Alberta, located on traditional Treaty 6 territory, and was made possible by support from Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada funding, and the Cool Institute of Advanced Study. This podcast is produced by Just Powers with production assistance from Jesse Beyer and Danny Jorgensen-Skakum and was recorded and mixed by Catlin W. Cusick at Sublet Sound.